just what we need. Another Ray dominating in superbikes. Welcome to episode 53 of Bike Life. Let's go! Yes, this is episode 53 of Bike Live on Motorsport 101. As we review the opening round of the British Superbike season, which got underway in freezing conditions at Donington Park uh, last weekend. And, well, we were all shocked by what we saw. An incredible double victory for the Milky Bar Kid as Bradley Ray takes his first and second British Superbike victories at the age of 20. To take the early lead in the championship, we'll talk about how he did it. Um, and how Suzuki have gone from also rounds to the class of British Superbikes uh, in just 12 months. Uh, we'll also talk about all the other stories to come from last weekend as Shaky Byrne made a solid start to his title defence. James Ellison got a podium and a crash, showing that some things never change in BSB, whilst there were also solid starts for the likes of Leon Haslam, Luke Mossy and Glenn Irwin, whilst others, in particular two of last season's Showdown 6, had nightmare starts to their seasons, namely Josh Brooks and Jake Dixon. We'll also bring you all the news to take place away from BSB this week, including the news of two substitutes that are going to be standing in in the World Superbike Panic for the next round at Aragon in a week's time. And indeed, we'll look ahead to this weekend and the Argentine Grand Prix Round 2 of the MotoGP 2 and 3 Championships. And it is the lightweight class of those three that has been making the headlines today. Uh, more on that uh, towards the end of this week's show. Uh, joining me once again to look back on this opening round of the British Superbike season, um, it's Andre Harrison. Warm welcome, Dre. And I mean a warm welcome, given that the British Superbike riders were freezing their fingers off last weekend. Indeed. But as an old song used to go, you know, the monkey bar kid is strong and tough and only the best is good enough. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to get my coat. But... Uh, <laughs> But uh, that's his, second, that's his second shocker in two podcasts. Oh, get out! <laughs> Leave me alone, okay? I'm the comic relief character on this podcast. I thought we established this. <laughs> yeah, uh, anyone who uh, anyone who wonders what we're on about, just check out episode 130 of Monospot 101, um, and uh, and the, when the discussion turns to BRDCF3, um, you'll know what we talk about. What we're talking about when you hear it. Um, but uh, but first of all, uh, let's tell you about the various places you can find us. Uh, starting on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Uh, on Twitter, we are at Motorsport underscore 101. Uh, so you can follow us on there. If you want to follow us individually, at Harrison101HD and at Lewis Sotheby23. Um, our YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Um, our website is motorsport101.net, where you can find back catalogs of both of our weekly podcasts. And if you want to get them before everybody else, um, you can do so by backing us financially on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101, Dre, where we've had a couple of brand new backers this very week. Yep, shout out to Brian Glennon as well, a new $10 backer, and you know, that's awesome, that's always a good time, just double checking my email list one more time, because I didn't I, I didn't think you'd spring that on me, all of a sudden, because yeah. I did mention it on the on, on episode 130 as well, but I will do it again here, shout out to Brian Glennon and Lee Dowling as well, both for joining us as Patreon backers, thank you very much for your continued support, and yeah. for somehow being crazy enough to give us money. <laughs> yeah, incredible, and another shout out while we're at it, because uh, I know you'll be listening, um, Kelly Bone at British Pokemon 1991 uh, on Twitter, um, yes. who uh, set herself a challenge of going through the whole back catalogue <laughs> of Motorsport 101 and Bike Live. And as of Wednesday of this week, uh, the 4th of April, she was about 50% done. 
Uh, 50 yeah, percent to go. Hashtag 2018 goals. You are yep. a masochist, Kelly, but we thank you for your support. <laughs> Why do you like pain? Like, that's all I want to know. Um, so, no, she, she, I follow her on Instagram, but she's gotten all the way back to episode 62 of Motorsport 101, where, um, the the episode where I mentioned a certain out-of-town trip. Um wasn't wasn't particularly proud of that one, I have to say. But um, yes, that was a thing. So um, Kelly, I salute your dedication slash rampant masochism um, to this show. Um, keep going, and um, you can see the quality of the show slowly get worse over t- over time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, um, I, I salute your dedication. That that takes some doing. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can go back to that. Being quite fun, that listening to all of our podcast in reverse and trying to sort of work out as you go what all of the inside jokes mean. Uh, and where they come from, um, and where they originate in previous shows. You can tell we're padding for time, can't you? Um, but yeah, huge thank <laughs> you. <laughs> huge thank you, Kelly, for your continued support. And uh, we hope you enjoy um, each of our weekly shows, which continue um, into next week, episode 131 of Monosport 101 coming next week, which we'll be reviewing a bit of a bumper weekend, Dre. We've got Formula 1 back in Bahrain. Uh, Dre's trying to um, try not to pay too much attention to how quick the Ferraris were in practice today. We're not um, doing this. <laughs> but, uh, but, but IndyCar are back too. Yes, indeed. We say, yeah, Formula One in Bahrain this weekend. Uh, yeah, Ferrari one and two in free practice too. That you, you're really not helping the course, fellas. Like seriously, like like get a grip. <laughs> we're not we're not this quick, okay? <laughs> like like is it? This came two days after Sebastian insisted that Merck's are four temps a lap quicker. It's like guys are really not helping here. <laughs> but um, that is a thing. IndyCar has their first short oval round of the season with the new Universal Aero kit in Phoenix as well this weekend. So we'll be talking about that on episode one thirty as well. And maybe even some more boneheaded comments from Lewis Hamilton, because that's always a fun discussion on the podcast, right? Right? <sighs> oh, and some big 2021 rulebook may or may not have been released this, this week. Kind of an interesting one, that. Um, apparently some teams are not best pleased about that, which means it can only be a good thing. Episode 130 of Motorsport 101, most likely sometime next week. Yeah, a, a horse may well be prancing off out of here um, if, if uh, they're a threat to be believed. That's all to come next week on Motorsport 101. Next week's episode of Bike Live, which will be episode 54, uh, will be breaking down this weekend's Argentine Grand Prix uh, from all three classes. And as I mentioned, we'll be getting on to that towards the end of the show because there was a uh, controversial incident in Moto3 first practice this morning. One of the, what should be in theory, one of the most event-free sessions of any Grand Prix weekend turned out to be very eventful. Um, so we'll talk about that later on. Um, but first, let's start with the opening round of the British Superbike Championship, which took place in freezing conditions at Donington Park last weekend. So cold, in fact, that they decided to uh, change the schedule around. They were in- in- initially going to race both races one and two on Easter Monday. That is usually the plan for the opening round of the BSB season. Um, but given the threat of hail and snow, they decided to bring race one forward from its early Monday slot to Sunday afternoon uh, with qualifying taking place on Sunday lunchtime. Leon Haslam topped it to take pole position ahead of Luke Mossy, his JG Speedbit Kawasaki teammate. Um, to the phone book, we thought. Uh, the phone book was pretty much thrown in the shredder from there on in. Um, yep. as, uh, as Brad Ray from the third row of the grid came through to take a stunning victory um, in race one. And of course, doing the double. We'll talk about his race two victory in a moment, Dre. But his race one victory, just a sensational piece of riding from a 20-year-old kid who rode with the coolness and the poise and the um, just the brilliance of a veteran. When he had, Particularly when you look at the closing stages of that race where he had the likes of James Ellison 
and the six times champion Shaky Burn, a guy who is literally old enough to beat his dad. Um, he is, he is <laughs> yep. twice his age. Um, the, the most decorated rider in the history of this championship, chasing him down on the final lap, and Bradley Ray did not miss a beat. No, he was excellent. That was an excellent, excellent race. I, I, James Whitson pointed that out after the race accidentally in the commentary where he said straight up, he, there was no gimmies attached to that victory. And there was there was no attrition rate. Um, most of the top tier riders finished. Just most many of them just had bad days. But even so, like he he there was nothing plausible to take anything away from Bradley's victory. He just rode superbly from the start, led from the front. Um, yes, he, you know, he he managed it to perfection. Ellison and Shaky were probably a little bit quicker towards the end, but like Bradley did what he needed to do. You know, did not put an inch out of place on the final on the final bend. If anything, he would be actually probably benefited a little bit from Shaky making a desperate play to try and get to the front on the final lap. Him fighting of Ellison was probably just enough of a break to uh, get Bradley Ray the, the the space he needed to, to just wrap it up and manage the bike and take the victory. It was a magnificent ride from Bradley. I mean, again, biggest problem I can say about it was that this wasn't a guy in his second season. He didn't say he didn't look that way to me. It looked like he'd been here for a decade already. And that was a, a race win handled with maturity, poise, speed. You name it. It was it was a fantastic performance. Did not put an inch out of place. And uh, yeah, completely deserved. Yeah, sensational, sensational ride. And as I mentioned, he had to come from the third row in race one. He qualified in seventh, which even that on its own would have been considered a very good qualifying position for Brad Ray. Um, given that you know he did have that podium at Alton Park last season, but that apart, he was usually around the top ten um, or just below that. So for him to qualify seventh was a pretty decent start to his weekend. But he just came through the field, sliced through, managed to get away with that front group, which included Haslam initially, more on him later because he soon dropped out of there, and James Ellison. And yeah, Brad Ray just didn't really seem to ever look under any kind of pressure. His lead whittled away in those closing laps, but. Fair play to him. He just held it all together. Just didn't give mm-hmm. Ellison or or Shaky Burn a sniff of it. And the the one points where Ellison was perhaps in a position to make a play for the lead, Bradway had him covered. We saw him taking that defensive line into the foggy yeses towards the end of the lap. Um, and by doing that, even though he had a bit of a wobble on the exit from that, he had enough of a gap to defend it into the Melbourne Loop. And obviously, as you mentioned, Ellison had his own problems to deal with because Shaky Burn was barreling up the inside of him um, at that point. So a terrific first victory in British Superbikes for Bradley Ray, the second youngest ride in the whole field, um, mm-hmm. and he made them all look um, incredibly silly. Second um, youngest race winner in BSB history. It was only Jonathan Ray was ever younger when he when he won a Grand Prix. I think he was 18 when he won his. But, uh, it's good copy but, uh, yeah. keeping, isn't it? Not, um, not bad, you know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, incredible. And just to tell us that that was no fluke and that was no... that was a, It was a victory taken entirely on merit... Race two followed on the Monday afternoon. Of course, as I mentioned, race one had been brought forward to the Sunday. So with a whole 24 hours to think about what he'd done and with the rest of the field being granted 24 hours to try and rectify whatever they got wrong in the previous race, Bradley Ray starts from pole position um, for race two by virtue of his sensational pace um, in race one, which saw him set the fastest lap of the race and therefore take pole position based on the way race two grids are set uh, in BSB. Race two took place on a slightly damp track. There were dry lines emerging, so a lot of riders opted to start on slicks. Some started on intermediate fronts and would suffer for yeah. that as the race like, went on. Like, didn't, like Dan Linford, for like instance. Like he, uh, he still was rewarded with a podium, but he ended up falling 
uh, some 11 seconds back from Bradley Ray. Um, but another sensational victory and a different kind of victory, Dre, to his race one victory. This wasn't one where he just held on to the lead and sort of managed it from the front. This was a race victory where Bradley Ray took pole position and just plain checked out. Yeah, he was gone. Like, within within the first two laps, he had a one-second advantage, and it just kept growing and growing, essentially, towards towards the latter stages. He, he, like, he had a brilliant launch, a brilliant turn one, and he was already half a second clear of everybody else, um, basically tiptoeing around turn one, not knowing what the conditions were going to be on that turn one apex and coming down the crane of curves. But Bradley just had the, just the level of confidence on this kid to be able to go in to you know that opening lap in those conditions not knowing what you're going to do at full racing speed but again just handled it supremely just did not again just it was a different sort of victory he had the confidence just to check out and again was never under any sort of threat had a comfortable margin managed the race mastered the conditions out there on a fully dry setup again despite that there was many puddles out there many damp lines off the racing line there which again could have been treacherous and as we saw, we had a couple of big accidents towards the end of that race as well. But despite that, Bradley just handled that excellently. Just a just again a magnificent victory. Again, he, he he's acting like he's not like he's like he's not a rookie. He's like he's yeah. been here ten years. If you'd have painted that bike red, you'd have thought that was shaky. But it, it wasn't. It was a twenty-year-old milky bar kid. It was just just phenomenal stuff. Right. From Bradley. He's, he's taking on. it all in his stride and. Mm. What really stuck out to me from that race weekend was on, on Sunday after his race one victory and the interview with his team boss, Stuart Hicken uh, of Bull Bay Suzuki, um, who was asked by um, the new pit reporter whose name unfortunately escapes me at the moment, um, who asked him, you know, what, what, what can you go on to achieve this season? You know, what are your aims for the season? And he just went, win the championship. Why not? <laughs> and I thought, I thought to myself, aim, aim low, kid, aim low. Yeah. And I thought to myself, wow, Stuart's feeling punchy, isn't he? He's, he's, you know, he's really up for it after a race win. And then I watched race two and thought, that wasn't him being punchy. He means it. Well, let's, let's put it to you this way: Am I right in saying now Suzuki's won four out of the last six races? Uh, well, three of the last, three of the last six, haven't they? Because Ginter's won yeah. one at Assen. Yeah. So this is a very much a, a growing force in BSB, and this team. First of all, let's not get let, get anything twisted. This team knows how to compete for British Superbike titles, not with a Suzuki, but they they came within a broken collarbone of taking Kianari to the title when they ran BMWs um, mm-hmm. three and a half years ago. So this team knows what it's doing um, in British Superbikes. Um, and it's pretty clear that Bradley Ray knows what he's doing too. As um, Greg Haynes quite rightly made the point, this is a kid who's raced against and beaten Joan Mir in Red Bull Rookies before. Right. This kid's an exceptional talent. I, 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 I remember specifically listening to a lot of the commentaries from Bernicle and Whittam who were talking about how people around him has been pushing for this for a good three or four years. They knew this kid was an exceptional talent from the time he was a teenager. Um, and if anything, I think it's people that are closer to his camp have tried to slow roll him a little bit here. Like, you know, let's take our time. Let's pace ourselves. Let's not go all in here. But... He's shining, and like, like the, the the more that the pressure is put on him, the more he's performing. It's it's incredible. He's like a bike in Charles Leclerc in a sense, where it's like the more he steps up, the faster he seems to be proving himself to be. It's it's insane how 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 his his rise has been so meteoric in this domestic ladder, and yeah, like it's it shows again. He he did not look like a second year guy out there on an experimental brand new Suzuki. Um, it's. 
it's 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 incredible to say the least. It's uh it's it was a real eye opener for the championship that we've got another brand new winner. We even though we had I think what was it ten different winners last season, we've already got one that we another first time winner this season. It's incredible. Yeah, an incredible start to the season. And, and as I mentioned, the Suzuki is is a really is a growing force in British superbikes, and the build based team deserves so much credit for the way that they've improved this bike. Of course, they weren't the necessarily the factory Suzuki theme last season. We also had the Bennett's team um, that were running last year and we saw Gintoli running for them and of course took a win um, later in the year um, at Assen. Um, but that's Gintoli who's a world champion on the bike and that's a rider who knows his way around Assen. So whatever bike he's on, you perhaps shouldn't be surprised to see someone Gintoli winning a British Superbike race. This guy knows what he's doing. He's a world champion. Um, but for, for a 20-year-old kid to just take this bike and run with it and go and dominate with it is an incredible, incredible story. And I mean, we've seen riders... I mean, he's, he's got to be thinking showdown, even at this early stage, hasn't he, Dre? With 50 points on the board at this early stage. Mm. Um, he's got to be thinking showdown. And we've seen riders go into the showdown with less than 10 podium points on their back before they right, start. Right. So it's the kind of championship, the way the championship lends itself, we, we can't take too much from one round. But given that six get themselves into a showdown position and earn themselves that chance... And we usually say, what, around between sort of 150 to 200 points gets you in? Uh, Brad Riz, yeah, Brad, Brad, Brad yeah, Riz say about, 50 already. Yeah, I'd say about 170. I'd say about 170 would get you in nine times out of ten. Uh, and Brad he's Riz already a third of the way there. Yeah, he's already about a third of the way in already. So, yeah, like, if he gets, if he's able to pluck out another three or four podiums, he's probably going to make it in. Um, yeah, I... It's an interesting question that Michael Laverty tweeted in during during race one. He tweeted Bernicle on his Twitter account and he pulled it up on TV where he said, is this the time to expand the showdown format to 10 riders? Mm. That was that was Michael Laverty's when he said that six might be a bit too narrow now, given how open the field is, which I thought was interesting. Well, does but, BSB even need the showdown anymore? <laughs> Good question. Um, is it an, is it a greater enhancement to the championship for its presence? I don't think it is. Um, but, you know, that's a discussion for another yeah. day. However, like, Showdown itself, he's got to be thinking that now, surely. Like, why wouldn't you? Well, if you've, if you've, if you've left the weekend with 50 points underneath you, like, if the, if the end of last season is any sort of measure, like, Suzuki have been a resurgent team since, since probably Assen last season. Got a little bit of Cadwell Park, they were very strong yeah, as the, well. The progress has just continued, hasn't it? Yeah, it's 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 skyrocketed the last three or four rounds now of the championship, going back to last season and the showdown there. They've looked like a different team. Like that swing arm has really helped, and they've again that this has proved it was no fluke. They've continued to carry that form forward um, to, towards this season as well. By the looks of it, that bike is competitive. It clearly is, given how dominant Ray was all, all weekend long. Like again, he did he did not look like he was going to lose either of those races. Um, incredibly impressive job from not just obviously from Brad himself, but the Bill Bay Suzuki team have done a great job with that bike. It's it's looking very very fast indeed. And if that's the case, why not think Showdown? Mm, absolutely. He leads the championship, obviously, at this early stage, as he would with two wins out of two. Um, and he leads it by 19 points from the reigning champion, um, Shane Shaky Byrne, who finished second in race one from uh, the front row, which may lead you to think he had a pretty uh, event-free race running at the front. That wasn't quite how it panned out um, for Shaky, who uh, gave me one of the great quotes from that British White race weekend, where... 
um, in speaking to Matt Roberts in the uh, post-race sort of part Fermi area, he, he, he sort of talks about his mindset going to that final corner and how he thought of potentially having a dive up the inside of Bradley Ray. Um, and Shaky Burn go, comes out with the line of, well, I, I thought of having a dive up the inside, but I thought if I wipe, these, wipe both of us out in the first round of the year, I'm going to look like a right sh dipstick. <laughs> which, which I thought was brilliant, how he suddenly checked himself very quickly yes. and decided to use the most dad sort of expression ever. Um, calling himself a dipstick, <laughs> um, but uh, but a solid enough start for him. And given that he pretty much went vertical from the start rather than forwards, um, with an extraordinary wheelie off the line, dropped as mm. low as ninth at one point, he'd taken second. If anything, the pace he showed in the second half of that race kind of proves that Shaky is still probably going to be the man to beat this season. That was an incredible recovery and to put himself in a position where he was only three temps off the victory in race one in the end, despite an awful start and a lot of traffic to get through. He wasn't in that, like that leading group until right at the end of the race. Um, you know, so it's, it's a situation where shaky was very, very fast and he probably the fastest man on track in the second half of the race. He tore through a lot of, you know, similarly performing rivals, the guys that, you know, we normally expect at the at the, at the thick end of the championship. Um, and he carved through them. If that race was a couple of laps longer, I'm not sure Bradley wins that one. Yeah, I think um, give, him, give him one more lap, and I think he had it. He, I mean, he was, yeah. he was lapping at, at least half a second a lap quicker than the front two late on. Yeah. Again, that, that pace was alarming. And, like, again, race two, bit more susceptible to mistakes. Shaky was not comfortable out there in, in the conditions, but race one was dry. That will probably be your better barometer for the season going forward. And if that's the case, then Shaky is looking very, very comfortable indeed. He'll take, you know, those free podium credits for the second place. It's not a disaster. I'm not sure how much of a threat he considers Bradley at the moment, but that's more than salvageable for, for Shaky at the moment. And 31 points in at this stage is, is not a bad weekend at all, especially given... Given the history of, of Shaky on that Ducati so far, they tend to be slow out of the box anyway. So the fact that they've got a podium already, given Shaky's awful start to the season last year, um, this is a market improvement having 31 points right away. So, yeah, I think he'll take it. I don't think he'll be too disappointed leaving Donington this weekend. Yeah, I'm just looking back through the lap charts from that race weekend and um, just the progress that he made. I mean, if you go back to lap 12 in an 18-lap race, he was 2.6 seconds off the race winner, um, the ultimate race winner, Brad Ray. That was still 2.6 on lap 13. So with five laps to go, he was 2.6 seconds off the race winner. Um, and he just suddenly just started reeling them in. Even with three to go, it was still 2.4 seconds. Um, and then on lap 16, he did a, uh, a 130.2 gained 6.10. So lap 17, the penultimate lap, he gained a second. Um, he did a 30.0 as Brad Ray dropped into the 31s. And on the final lap, Yikes. again, another half a second. Uh, that was alarming uh, a pace that Shaky Byrne had. Um, and yeah, I think give him one more lap and he'd have won it. And he'll, he'll probably take the 20 points that were on offer for that. Um, and the podium credits, more importantly, I suppose, that come with that. Because I don't think Shaky Byrne's going to struggle to make the showdown um, as long as he stays injury-free. Um, and in race two, uh, <laughs> difficult conditions, obviously, with dry and wet patches out there. And he ended up getting bottled up behind another of the impressive youngsters in Danny Buchan, who finished fourth. We'll talk about him maybe in a moment. Um, but Shaky Byrne ended up stuck behind him and finished fifth. Again, that was a day just for keeping the bike on the island and banking some points, wasn't it? Exactly. That's what it was. It was a it was a treacherous sort of race. It was, I wouldn't say it was flat out dangerous, but I would say it was 
the sort of race where one wrong move would end your day very early and probably in a bit of pain. Um, so, yeah, I'm quite right. I think that was one of those sorts of races where you'll just take a result, quite frankly. I mean, um, very, very easy to go wrong, very dangerous in that sense where it's just like if you're off the racing line, you could have been in serious trouble. There was puddles and you know, visible spray coming off the tyres on, on some of those um outside line so yeah any sort of result there would have been all right um very very viable indeed yeah the race two podium was completed by behind bray by leon haslam and dan linfoot and it's linfoot we'll talk about next because he's the next man in the championship dan linfoot is third at the moment uh, in the points 29 points from a possible 50 for him um in this first week race weekend uh, of the season and this is a rider who we spoke about last week as a potential dark horse just to get into the showdown given how well, he ended last year, taking his first victory, which he followed up with another at the very next round um, at Alton Park. And we spoke about Honda, didn't we, as well last week, Dre, about how they made progress. Much like Suzuki, Honda really did uh, do better than perhaps they had any right to with a new bike last year. Um, and they're another team that looked like they've carried that p- performance and that progress into this year. Dan Linfoot, as consistent as anyone, with the exception of Bradley Ray, fourth in race one um, and only three seconds off the win as well whilst doing so. And three seconds mm. off the winning race two as well, but that one, uh, sorry, 11 seconds off the winning race two, and that added up to a podium. Linfoot, again, he'll be thinking showdown after a very, very strong start, given how yeah. difficult he started last year. 29 points at this early stage is a great return. It is an excellent return from Dan Linford. That is pretty much Honda at its absolute best right now. I mean, I think on net performance... That's about as good as Honda probably could have op- hoped for on the opening round there. Only, you know, the real, real class of the field in front of them there, you know, Shaky Bradley, you know, the usual suspects at the top. I mean, we could, we could probably put Shaky, Haslam and Brooks in their own bracket and Brooks had a terrible weekend. Um, more on him later. But as you say, that was a very strong weekend for Lynn for 29 points already in the bank. A podium credit as well will, you know, will always come in handy. Um, yeah, Halloran was up there as well in that leading group. A couple of mistakes to pull him further down the field, unfortunately. But um, as you say, Linfoot again, carrying that end of 2017 form into 2018. And yeah, a pair of very solid results indeed. I mean, Linfoot probably would have been right up the front if he'd actually made a, a more intelligent call on the on the. <laughs> On the front tire, he had, he had the intermediate front in race two, which just wasn't the right tire. And that's why he probably finished 13 or so seconds off the victory. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those things where Honda, again, continued to look strong. And let's put it to you this way. The top four in the championship right now, read Suzuki, Ducati, Honda, Kawasaki. You can't have much more of an open advert for the distinction of the bikes in your series when there is four different manufacturers in the top four at the moment. Mm, yeah, and Dan Limpo didn't get on the podium at all last year until that summer round at Brands where mm-hmm. he was arguably robbed of the victory with the red flag coming out just after Shaky Bernard overtaken him for the lead um, in that Brands race. Um, but that was his first podium of last year, and he's done it at round one this year, and that was his only podium at all until that shock win at Silverstone in those monsoonical conditions of race three. Um, so he's very much started this season on a much stronger footing. His teammate Jesna Halloran's done fairly much the same. He started the season uh, with two solid top ten results, a seventh and a ninth for him, and he is very much in touch with that top six as well um, at this very early stage. Leon Haslam, though, um, he's also right in there in the mix, and he's another rider who we're expecting to be uh, in the showdown. He's fourth in the championship after round one with 27 points. Um, mm-hmm. for him um, he'll be one of those guys who was wishing it ended up dry and a bit warmer won't he um, because it looked yeah. pretty clear that from qualifying and free practice on Saturday and then into Sunday 
if everything was dry and everything remained equal, and did more to the point had he not started on the harder front tyre, Leon Haslam had the pace to go out there and win it. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing because Haslam has always liked the harder compound front. That's that's been a signature part of Haslam's speed um, for the last couple of seasons. He doesn't like the the zero level tire that they run from the Pirelli. He always likes the ones, which is the harder compound. Um, a lot of the time it works. Some of the times it doesn't work, and this is one of the times where it didn't work. He was on that. He was on a different compound to everybody else. He was the only guy who went with a different compound front tire. And in after the race, he said straight up that he didn't have any grip in the front beyond lap six. Hence why he fell down the order so quickly. Um, he just had no front grip and no confidence in the front of the bike whatsoever. He was basically sliding the thing around for the for two thirds of that race. Hence why he finished in ninth, despite having the, the start, starting from pole position. Um, it, again, race two was probably a better example. He was the only guy in Bradley race postcode um, in race two, only a handful of seconds behind in the end. Yeah, that was a much stronger performance, fastest lap of the race, second place. Um, and that was probably a lot more representative of what Haslam's pace is going to be, not to mention the pole position at the start of the weekend as it is, where he, where he beat the hell out of the field there by a good... You know, a good third of a second on pole position. So, again, I don't think Haslam will be too upset leaving the weekend. It could, like, that race one is a bit of a black mark, but I don't think that tells the true story about his pace. Um, and plenty of rounds to make it up. And he'll, he'll, he'll go strong at Brands Hatch, especially the Indy layout, and that's coming up next. So I don't think he'll be too upset. Yeah, if you... Uh, by the way, if anyone's just wondering when, when this show was recorded, it was recorded on Friday night. Uh, around about 8.55. So if you're wondering, if you hear any sort of loud cheers and screams in the background, um, it's because Dre has probably just read the news that Lewis Hamilton's set to get a five-place grid penalty at this weekend's Bahrain Grand Prix. Son of a bitch! Uh, so, uh, so uh, yeah, if you're wondering... I have no idea! Uh, well, it's just broke on Autosport, slash motorsport.com, slash every motorsport website you can find. Um, so uh, so Dre's um, currently grinning from ear to ear. Um, but, yeah... Um, I'll on, on now! Um, but on Haslam, yeah, Haslam uh, kind of blamed a lot of it on Pirelli. I mean, I, I struggle to have too, sympathy, too much sympathy for him, considering, as you say, he was the only guy to start on um, the harder option front. But he, he more pointed to the fact that he was running uh, 2017 tyres, or a lot of people were running 2017 tyres, and he was running the 2018 tyre. Um, mm. And he just doesn't believe there's consistency in the quality that of the products that Pirelli are producing. Uh, Haslam told MCN, we've got a massive issue with the consistency of the Pirelli tyre. I had the issue yesterday, um, speaking about these uh, Saturday practice in, uh, excursions, um, but wasn't 100% sure and thought it might have been an isolated issue. But I now think it's something to do with the 2018 produced tyre. They seem to be a second a lap slower and last half the distance compared to 2017 tyres. Yesterday, the podium guys were on 2017 tyres, while myself, Brooks and Dixon, the guys who dropped back, were on the 18 tyre. Um, earlier in the weekend, I did a race run on a 17 tire and could do 129s on my last lap. In the two races, I couldn't even do 32s, despite having the exact same setup and similar track temperature. You cannot have people on the grid on 2017 tires and 2018 tires. The difference is too big. If we were all on the same, it'd be different. On Sunday, I nearly pulled in. It was that dangerous because he didn't pull in and he ended up finishing in ninth. I mean, <laughs> again, a bit of sympathy for that in that, you know, in a way, I can see what he's saying in that you shouldn't have 2017 and 2018 tyres. But no, that, does, that doesn't seem right. But in a way, Dre, it still highlights the point that there were two options and he chose the wrong one. And it's not the first time Haslam's done that either. It played his showdown last season right at the end of the season in Brands Hatch where choosing the wrong tyre 
cost him a bucket load of points. He does seem more uh, sensitive than most, doesn't he, to the wrong tyre, yes. the right tyre? Yeah, it's, it seems to me that like he's the only guy on the field that seems to complain about this. It's like, I don't see anybody else talking about making the wrong tyre choice. It seems that this is only... It's, it's, like, it's like it's exclusively a Haslam problem. And, like, it's... I, I agree with him to a degree that you probably shouldn't have two different years of compounds on the grid at the same time. That is probably problematic. But it is and still the same kind of, for everyone. It is still the same for everyone, but it's it's like you're kind of opening Pandora's box if if you know when it comes to competitive balance. Because if Haslam gambles and gets it right and he ends up winning that race by five seconds or so, like I, I guarantee you a lot of the field are going to have the exact same complaint that Haslam has just made. Or, why is he allowed to have an 18 tyre on the grid? And then everyone else will just say, well, you had the chance to run it, but you didn't. And it's like, oh, and then you go back to the testing and it's all a bit of a political mess. Um, so, yeah, like to a degree, I see where Haslam is coming from. That You know, if it really is a case where the compounds have got that bigger discrepancy in performance, then that's a problem and that shouldn't be a thing. But at the same time, Haslam is the only person I've heard complain about that problem. So I'm not sure how much stock I want to put into it. Mm. It's a tricky one. Yeah, he uh, he claims that had the only reason he got on the podium in race two is because the conditions were as they were. He says that if it was just a normal dry race in race two, he would have had the same problems. Um, in response to his complaints, Pirelli, uh, Pirelli's Jason Griffiths has also been speaking to MCN, and he says that he's spoken to Leon and Jack Ballantyne, who's one of the senior team bosses um, at JG Speedfit. Uh, I've taken on board their comments, and I'll send the information to Italy, await their response, and feedback to the JG Speedfit Kawasaki team. The tyres are produced in the same way, and it's the same compound and out of the riders. Uh, Leon is the only one I've spoken to who had a problem. Um, again, referencing what we've said before, who Leon um, often seems to have complaints when times go wrong, but it's not unusual, is it? Not just in BSB, but in the World Superbike Championship and indeed sometimes in MotoGP for some riders to say, hey, I've got a dodgy tyre um, that, that left me with no pace. It's perhaps one of the oldest excuses in the book, but perhaps we might have to give a bit of stock to what Haslam has said. Of course, he's been around the block a few times, um, as is James Ellison, who also started his race weekend with a podium um, and won, by comparison, very, very dodgy result. Let's start with his podium, Dre, in race one. Um, third in the end, second for a lot of the race before being uh, ambushed by Shaky Burn two corners from home. Um, this was a guy who just time and time again last season struggled to convert promising positions into good results. So I guess he should, certainly if we're talking about race one, be encouraged by the fact that he did convert it into points and podium credits. Yeah, race one was fantastic for him on that one. Um, yeah, it was right up there in the thick end of it. Had a good, had a decent chance for the win. Didn't quite come together. Got pegged by Shaky right at the end. Can't ask for much more than that. Good result. Second race, well, rider error. You could make the argument there for on that one again, given the conditions, a little bit understandable. But again, like the tag, the tag, and what's that tag? You were there. Like I was talking about Red Bull for a second there. Um, yeah. The Tag Yamaha team there, they will take that, I think. It seems to be a continuation of the form they were had they had last year when they were again up the thick end of things for sure with Brooks. It looks like Ellison is somewhere on that level still as well, where he again he's challenging for wins right away, which I guess is only a good thing. It gets to show you that the, the team is consistent and you know they've got they got a good setup and Ellison was able to get a, you know a good level of pace out of it. So yeah, they'll they'll take that. That's uh, they, uh, that that was a good race one. Not so good race two, obviously, but 
as a, a marker for the, uh, the pace that they've got at the moment, that's certainly a good way to go. Mm. We're going to talk about Brooks later on, but we might as well talk about him now while we're talking about Yamaha and, mm. and how well Ellison went. Um, James Ellison started the race weekend or the, the season with a third in race one, which had potentially had Chicky Burn not been there at the end of race two. He was probably lining himself up to make a last-ditch lunge on Bradley Ray, wasn't he? Um, so he might well have won race one on another day. Um and was running competitively in the top 10 before he looped it uh, high side all the way out of the Melbourne loop um, in race two. By contrast, Josh Brooks, we never really saw much of him and his Peaky Blinders moustache. Um, he qualified down in 13th um, on the Sunday, finished there um, at the end of the first race and finished very similar in race two, just struggling, in his words, to make up for a dodgy starting position. Um but it has to be said, Dre, based on what we saw for a lot of last season, and we're comparing the two lead Yamaha teams here, Vanville High Attack and McCams, it's the riders may have swapped positions, but the team order appears to be very much the same. Yeah, it, it seems to me as if that, you know, we were quite critical of McCams on several occasions last year. I mean, I remember I was, I was at Brands Hatch myself in person at the Indy Layout Race in round two last year, and I remember seeing the damage on Ellison's McCam's Yamaha bike because he was trying to take to the grid. And I'm like, they're not seriously going to race him in that, are they? Um, and turns out they had, to, they had to yank him out of the event at the last minute, which, again, kind of said it all, really, that it's like I, I was quite harsh, and I said at some point, and it's like I'm not sure this team knows what they're doing. And, like, Ellison, for me, Ellison is too good a rider where it's like if something is happening to him this consistently i can't help but shake the feeling that he's not the problem and it's a team problem because i know like ellison's always had the ability that's never been the problem with him he's always been an elite level rider in the class he's been a title contender on numerous occasions and he's done well on a, a, a wide variety of bikes so it's 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 some, i'm going to point my finger more towards the team because Ellison's got a proven track record. McCams, their track record last year was poor. So I'm going to point it in their favour, especially when Josh Brooks was so close to the title last year. Yeah, and it's very interesting when you read the quotes and the responses of both riders um, from their race weekend. And James Ellison's are very striking when he says, I think a lot of people thought it was a bit of a fluke last year with Josh being at the front on their bike, but they're a good, strong team. I'm a strong rider in BSB, and together we could have a good season. They haven't got a massive budget, and we don't get any support from Yamaha, but the team put a lot into it themselves, and they're doing a fantastic job. Sometimes in a smaller team, it's easy to make decisions. I didn't like the handlebars, so they got me different ones. I didn't like the tank, so they put a new one in. Um, he then says, it's something that you don't always get when a manufacturer or a sponsor have more control over a team, but it's working for us. Um... Basically, he has much more of a say in what goes on. All they want to do is win, and so do I. And that mentality goes a long way. Compare that to Brooks, um, who's speaking after his race weekend, um, says, Leon and Shaky have had three years on the same bike. They should be in a position to win both races without having to go through a big change uh, or a big range of changes to find their happy spot. They should have a fairly good understanding of their bike, their team, and their components. Whereas here, I've got a whole variety of differences. It may still be a Yamaha, but you've only got to change two components and you've got a completely different bike. I rode two seasons on a standard swing arm, one year with Milwaukee, one year with Anvil High Attack, and now I'm trying to get used to how the bike behaves on the factory suitor swing arm. 
But in the conditions this weekend, who knows what works. I mean, we may well see once we get normal conditions, because they were not normal summer superbike conditions at Donington, far from it, last weekend, but that that McCam's Yamaha suddenly is transformed and it works. Um, but you do kind of wonder, looking at what both riders have said, that Josh Brooks with, in quote-unquote, factory Yamaha support with factory parts, um, perhaps doesn't quite understand these bike, the bike he's riding on, whereas James Ellison has a bike he knows entirely and he's just getting on with riding it. Looks that way. I mean, it's like Edison's much more used to his package. And again, maybe it's the team mentality as well, the influence that he brings to that team, knowing that Edison is a respected elite rider in the field. If he's got a problem, it's probably worth taking on board. Um, um, Brooks is, looks like he's got more of a standardized Yamaha setup here with they've dropped the bike on him and it seems to be different from the one he had at tag last year. So it looks like he's trying to find the sweet spot again. So, you know, I'm sure Brooks will find it in the end. He, he did it when he won the title in 2015. He did it towards the end of last season where, like, that team suddenly around Brands Hatch really got good again right towards the end of the season. And again, very nearly stole the title out the back door and ran away. Um, so I'm sure Brooks will find it when conditions are a bit more representative. And I'm sure they'll have a much greater Wario test range of data to play with. And Brooks will find his feet again. And I've got no doubt about that. But... Yeah, that wasn't the best weekend, and it didn't look good when Edison was so strong up the front and Brooks was barely on the hard camera all race because he was just stuck in the midfield. Mm, yeah, it was a terrible weekend for the McCams Yamaha team in total because their other rider, Taron McKenzie, who had ridden for that team before in Super Sport and, of course, rode a lot in Moto2 last year, um, had a pretty bad accident um, in race one. Um, oh, sorry, after race one, in the warm-up that took place early on Monday um, and suffered a crack in his left wrist, which ruled him out of race two so a pretty poor weekend all told for the McCams Yamaha team uh, one rider unhappy and the other injured um, some riders though who've had injury hit past had good starts to the season though starting with Luke Mossy um, qualified in the middle of the front row in the um, drier conditions that we got um, on Sunday lunchtime qualified just behind his teammate Leon Haslam finished a solid fifth in that first race as well just behind the front three and of course uh, Linfoot in fourth leading a, a group Behind him included Glenn Irwin and Jason O'Halloran. He then finished eighth in race two, which, again, he'd probably take given the conditions and given that he's had injuries in the past. But I guess the most encouraging thing for Mossy Dre, who lies fifth in the points at the moment, is that after the horrendous injury that he had midway through last season, he looked much more like to his old self. He said it himself during um, during the race weekend that he feels like his old self. He finally feels like he's 100% again after dealing with those problematic injuries he took early through the 2017 season. He feels like he's back to something near his best. It's clear that he forced it during that final round before the showdown at, uh, at Silverstone last year. He clearly wasn't 100%. Um, in, in hindsight, going back and looking back at that weekend, he, he clearly was riding through through, through injury. And um, yeah, despite that, he's, he's taken the off-season out and he's recovered and it seems he's, he's back to his old self again, running up the front. And that's where he belongs. Mossy has that ability. And he, and he showed it again this weekend. And again, just two solid results. Um, not nothing too spectacular. Um, he'll he might be favourite for Brands Hatch coming up next. Remember, we all saw that incredible double he had at, at the Indy layout last year, where mm. he beat his teammate straight up over both rounds and comfortably took both victories um, out there. So again, Luke's got a very nice round to look forward to. 
um, coming up next. So again, I think we'll see. I think we'll see Rossi come. I think Rossi, I should say, rather than Rossi, come into play um, <laughs> at the upcoming round at Brands Hatch. Mm, yeah, and I, it's good to see. I think as well. In I mean. A fully fit Luke Mossy is more than capable of winning races and getting in the showdown, isn't he? He proved that last year. Um, but when I look at last weekend and I look at not just Bradley Ray's brilliant double victory and Luke Mossy's uh, return to fitness and return to form, um, but we also have seen in the past riders like Jake Dixon take a double last year. We saw Danny Buchan back in the series as, as the Stock Thousand champion finishing a superb fourth in race two and was running similarly high um, in the first race before he uh, started to fall down the field. Um, late on, fell down in the end to 13th. Um, but for, for a number of years, Jay, we've been waiting for the next young wave of talent in British Superbikes to really step forward and take over from this experienced old guard, which we've, I mean, mm. we've been talking about the likes of Ellison, Byrne, Brooks, um, and to a lesser extent Haslam, because he's been in the World Championship for a few years now. Mm. But it does appear now as if we're finally getting another wave of sensational young riders that might well be the next generation to take Britain to the top, not just in British Superbikes, but potentially on the world stage too. Sure, why not? I mean, yeah, as you said, like Danny Buchan is a guy who, if anything, is actually kind of a veteran. In, in, like, he's gone up and down the classes a couple of times over. Again, Whitam talked about this that you know, he was bait. Apparently, he was told when he joined FS3, this is sort of your last chance, mm. son, basically. At least, certainly on a competitive bike. He's on the Kawasaki. We know it's capable of winning races. We know it's got top tier level performance, um, but Buchan has, you know, he struggled to find himself. And I, I, to be fair, I was kind of surprised that, you know, he he fell in, in he fell in, in category last season given this talent. But this is a golden chance for him to come back up the field a little bit. And yeah, like the a fourth place in your opening weekend back in the top tier is certainly a good way of getting there. Mm, because I mean, we've seen the likes of, as I mentioned, the likes of Burn, Haslam, Brooks, uh, Ellison. They're not going to be around forever. Um, although, you know, Shaky Burns' continued um, pr- impressive performance into his 40s might well <laughs> make us think otherwise. Um, but they're not going to be around forever. And they're eventually going to have to be riders that step forward and take their place as the the leading British superbike riders that, that we have and potentially racing the world championship. And, and, and it was an impressive weekend and a promising weekend in that respect that we saw these, these very young riders stepping forward and showing that they can perhaps... Um, step forward in the future and that the future of British Superbike racing is in safe hands. Uh, outside of the showdown six then, um, we have a couple of riders who've started their seasons fairly well. Well, in fact, Glenn Owens just inside it after his um, double top seven uh, race weekend. He started the race weekend with sixth in race one, followed it with a seventh in race two. And Jason mm-hmm. O'Halloran on the Honda um, ended up with seventh in race one and ninth in race two. Two riders who, again, will have showdown in their sights. So O'Halloran's made it in each of the last couple of years. Uh, on that Honda. And Glenn Owens, one of the many riders last season who would have felt that had injuries not stepped in, he could and should have made it. Um, and I guess the, the task for Glenn Owens is to narrow that gap that existed for a lot of last year between himself and his teammate Shaky Byrne. And the early signs are that he maybe is closing it. Just like that way. I mean, like I can't believe he, he tweeted during the race weekend that, oh yeah, by the way, it turns out I had a broken neck last yes. season. As you do, uh, like I, a friend of mine, Kevin Walsh, tweeted to me to say, "This is the most bike racer sounding tweet of all time," and I was like, "Yep, yes it is." Um, so yeah, it turns out he was yeah, riding in, last in, year. Yeah, basically, an injury that he exacerbated by crashing on on the Sunday. 
yeah, with a broken freaking neck, uh, as you do. Um, but yes, as you say, again, nice results. In the top seven on both occasions, that's that that's very solid. Um, and as, as said, like he, he showed flashes, the real brilliance last season. He was getting up there, looking like he was a guy that could have been in the showdown. As you say, if if, if it wasn't for injury, he probably would have would have played a much greater role in that. So. Um, yeah, as you say right now, like Glenn Irwin should be thinking showdown. He absolutely should be thinking showdown. He should be thinking as well. Just even if he's not thinking, like basically look a little bit more competitive compared to Shaky, who is, is still again probably the leading man in the class at the moment. So yeah, no matter which way you slice it, Irwin should be thinking bigger here. Absolutely. Here's how the uh, weekend shaked out then. No pun intended. Bradley Ray, the winner in both races. He won race one from Shaky Byrne himself in second place and James Ellison third. Linfoot in fourth ahead of Mossy and Irwin with Jason O'Halloran um, in seventh place. Peter Hickman eighth. Um, he's another rider who's going to be thinking showdown this season. He had a solid enough start in eighth ahead of Haslam who plummeted all the way back to ninth. And Michael Laverty tenth. Um, back on his uh, return to the series and also moonlighting as a British Talent Cup TV presenter. Um, last weekend. Uh, Brad Ray, the race two winner. Leon Aslam in second, um, ahead of Limfoot in third. Buchan, a brilliant fourth, ahead of Shaky Burn. And Christian Iden uh, in sixth position. Um, he was only 14th in race one. Uh, Glenn Owen seventh. Luke Mossy in eighth, ahead of Jason O'Halloran. And Michael Laverty, a brace of top 10 results. Championship looks like this. Bradley Ray, the clear championship leader with 50 points and 10 podium credits ahead of shaky bird in second 19 points further back dan Linfoot's third on 29 ahead of haslam on 27 luke mossy's fifth on 19 level with glenn Irwin, who completes the very early showdown six james ellison's just behind them in seventh uh, he has 16 points ahead of jason o'halloran who's tied on 16 as is danny buchan uh, with michael laverty tending the championship after two 10th place finishes. Uh, in British Supersport, we saw two race wins for Ben Curry. Um, a very emotional race weekend for the Geelong Kawasaki team who lost their much-loved team owner, Norma de Bidaf. Um, she passed away over the winter, and uh, it was very poignant that they were able to take two victories and dedicate them um, to their late team owner. It was a very emotional race weekend uh, for that team. Uh, her late husband, or uh, husband, who of course she left behind, was in tears um, as Ben Curry took that race one victory. Um, he leads the championship as a result of that with 50 points. Jack Kennedy, um, who's been seen in World Supersport on that triumph in recent weeks, um, he's doing a regular season in the British Supersport Championship, and he's second in the championship after taking two second-place finishes. He is on 40 points. In National Stock 1000, we saw two race victories for Billy McConnell, who's dropped, done a bucket really, and dropped a class. Um, he's down into Super Stock 1000 now. Uh, he won races one and two, but the popular result of the three, because they raced three times last weekend, came in race three as Andy Reid returning to the championship after breaking his femur at Silverstone last year, returning to the series and taking his first win as a Stock 1000 rider in race three. So congratulations to him. And one other class to fully win on, and it was the historic debut of the British Talent Cup. They only raced once last weekend. Um, their scheduled second race on the Monday was cancelled due to the horrendous weather. Um, but the first ever victory, and this rider will go down in history as the first ever British Talent Cup race winner, it was the 16-year-old Thomas Strudwick who took the victory ahead of the 12-year-old Josh Watley, um, who finished in second place. Uh, Fenton Seabright, one of my favourite names in motorsport already, um, he finished in third. Rory Skinner, who was the pre-race favourite, had to start from the pit lane and ended up finishing in ninth place. The next round of the British Superbike Championship is very, very soon. It's in a week and a half's time in the uh, Brands Hatch Indy Circuit. 
Uh, whereas the next round of the British Talent Cup is when they support the World Superbike Championship back at Donington Park in hopefully much warmer conditions at the end of May. Right then, let's do the news. Not a lot of it this week uh, because it's very early in the season, so a lot of the news tends to break much later in the season. Um, but we do have some news to bring you from the World Superbike Paddock, starting with Super Sport, because we told you in previous shows, um, we spoke about it at length last week, Keenan Safoglu is potentially edging towards the exit door and potential retirement. We know he won't be racing in the next two rounds at Aragon and Assen because Kawasaki Pachetti have named his replacement. It's the South African Sheridan Marias, who of course won a race um, late last season um, and also very nearly won an Aragon last year the race that he's going to be taking part in um, next weekend gotta say his rate um, kind of two things on this one first of all given the situation that Pachetti Kawasaki find themselves in that's a pretty good rider to find as a standing replacement at short notice but equally what the hell was Sheridan Marais doing unemployed anyway right like how on earth was Sheridan Marais dropped out of the class when he was one of the better dudes in the championship last year? A guy that very nearly won in Aragon, ironically, this time last year and often had great results on the previous year's Yamaha R6. Um, he was a quality rider in the class last year. I do not know how he was near the top of the path for riders to potentially sign, let alone out of the class altogether. So that's a hell of a pull. Um, for Kawasaki to get to get Sheridan Marais in there again, a guy that can easily challenge for podiums when when he's feeling it, um, a great replacement for the next two rounds at least. Um, there's no reason why why he can't challenge for, at the top in, in my opinion at least. Um, so yeah, as I said, the great great replacement. But how the hell was he not in the class to begin with? That's what I don't understand. Yeah, <laughs> incredible and. Uh more on Pachetti as well. Their team boss, Manuel Pachetti, was at Donington Park for the BSB last weekend, um, no doubt scouting a potential rider replacement for Safoglu if he can't make it back for Donington. Um, they'll probably be looking, I mean, there's talk in this MCN column that they were looking at the double race winner from last weekend, Ben Curry, who won both Supersport races. Um, wouldn't be at all surprising if someone like him perhaps pops up on that Pachetti bike if they're still looking for a substitute um, for the yeah. British round of the championship towards the end uh, of next month. Uh, Milwaukee Apri have also been looking for a replacement in recent weeks. Of course, Eugene Lamity suffered those horrendous pelvis injuries um, in that crash with Jordi Torres in Buriram um, a couple of weeks ago. They also looked to have found a replacement. We were struggling last uh, week when we spoke to Greg Haynes to think of a potential replacement for them. They've plumped, it appears, for Davide Giuliano, uh, who rode as a stand-in for Honda late last year. Um, again, given the circumstances, it's probably as good as Milwaukee Pruliet were going to find, isn't it? Uh, but this is another rider who, I mean, he, he, I think he was drinking at the last chance saloon a year or two back, Dre. He was indeed. Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Davide didn't work out in the British Championship last year. We all that was very well publicised. Um, it is right towards the end of his run with Ducati. Wasn't particularly great. It wasn't what Ducati were looking for. Um, but to me, at least, I, given that most riders are tied down to contracts at this point, at least in my opinion, like this was about as good a rider as they could have hoped to get as a replacement. Davide has experience in the championship. He's capable of podiums on a competitive bike. 
And Aprilia has looked better than I thought they would so far this season, in, at least in my opinion. So I think there's, there's some potential there with Davide on that bike. So I know Savadori will be leading the team, and Savadori's had actually a pretty good season so far, despite you know the, the early injury he suffered. His pace looked solid. Um, so for me, right now, I think that's a very good replacement, and hopefully Davide gets to get something here pretty quickly. Yeah, probably as good as they were going to do. I have to say, though, if I was a team boss, if I was Sean Muir, and my rider combination was Davide Giuliano and Lorenzo Savadori, I'd probably be watching the races from behind the couch. Uh, because yeah. there's uh, two, yeah, two potentially erratic riders who've um, no danger to throw you at the scenery. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how Davide Giuliano gets on next round of the World Superbike Championship next weekend um, at Aragon. Um, so um, we look forward to seeing uh, how he gets on as a stand-in with that Milwaukee team. One more piece of World Superbike news, and it's congratulations to Jonathan Ray. Not that he's um, done much winning in the last year, let's face it. Um, he's also won the 2017 <laughs> Torrens Trophy. Um, awarded by the British Automobile Club. It's essentially their equivalent of their British sort of World Rider of the Year. You know Autosport when they hand out their awards to the yes. International Driver of the Year, often Lewis Hamilton, let's face it. Um, you mean the Lewis Hamilton Appreciation Trophy, yeah? Exactly. The rider that's probably done the best in World Championship competition. Um, mm-hmm. Last year it was awarded to Cal Crutchlow, understandably, as in last year, I mean the end of 2016. Um, yeah. for his double race victory in MotoGP that season. Um, the 2018 recipient, based on his achievements in 2017, was Jonathan Ray, um, who Yay. broke records with his dominance of the World Superbike Championship last season uh, with a record points total. And, of course, he finished as the runner-up in the British um, Sports Personality of the Year as well. He's the 11th recipient of this Torrens Trophy. Um, Jonathan Ray, congratulations to him. Um, he accepted the award at the RAC Clubhouse in London, um, back in um, the middle of last week. It's an award that's also been won in the past by the likes of James Toesland and Tom Sykes, uh, having won the World Superbike Championship in previous years as well. Um, so it's uh, an esteemed list of riders that he joins. Cal Crutchlow on that as well. Um, congratulations to Jonathan Ray, the winner of the 2017 Torrens Trophy. Um, right, who's going to be lifting the trophies in Tomaster Riondo this weekend then? Let's uh, round up this... Uh, slightly truncated edition of Bike Life by looking ahead to the Argentine Grand Prix round two uh, of the MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3 seasons. We're going to talk about Moto3 first, um, which is unusual. So, you know, something must have happened um, in that class for us to be talking about that first. And uh, boy, did something happen in free practice one earlier today. Um, Basically, within a quarter quarter of an hour of the session getting underway and the race weekend starting, um, in Argentina, uh, Aaron Kadic gets held up on a practice lap um, by the Kazakhstan rookie, Makar Yuchenko, uh, one of the youngest riders in the field. Um, this happens around sort of turn three, turn four, the corner on, onto the back straight at, at Argentina in the first sector of the lap. What we then see later on in the lap um, is a collision between the two heading into that tight sort of long sort of winding right-hander, the penultimate yeah. corner of the circuit just before the pit entry, um, where Aaron Kanik crashes, sideswiping Yurchenko. Um, <laughs> when, when we first saw it, Dre, um, I mean, the commentators on BT Sport, uh, Keith Ewan and Neil Hodgson, were immediately scathing of it. Um, and I think we were pretty much the same when we saw it at first glance. Yeah. And... I have to say, even with a few more hours to kind of digest what's going on, I don't think my opinion's really changed on it. No, I think it's still terrible. Um, 
Keith Ewan was actively calling him an idiot live on the air. Yeah, and and, apparently, yeah. Emilio Altamora was uh, trying to track down Ewan and Hodgson to uh, tell them how unhappy he was with them. But I think they were spot on. <laughs> yeah, I'm, listen, how can you not after that? Like, seriously. Like, I, uh, it's... I've, I've watched it now five or six times over. I've seen it from, a, from multiple angles. It's even more bang to rights than the incident that Keith Hewitt mentioned on commentary. He compared it straight up to Sepang 2015 with Valentino Rossi. And it, that and, immediately came to my mind too. Yeah, and I can't blame him. Like Hudson was was basically telling him to walk that back real quick. I was like, no, Hudson, give it both barrels. Yeah, right. um, no, because I think he's spot on. I think that was the obvious comparison to make. And while can it like there, there's enough of a gray area as like okay maybe Canada didn't do it on purpose but the way it looked going into that hairpin he either a made a horrible mistake and wasn't going to make the corner or two he did it to make a point and i think it's the latter in this case i, I think he saw yachenko he saw, i think he saw an opportunity to get right under his skin towards the apex of that uh, of that long sweeping hairpin at the end of the lap and he fell over and you know took yachenko out and I think that is a horrendous thing to do. I think it was it, it was it was awful, and I I, I I can't believe that you know um, the stewards made the decision that they made with it, which we'll get to in a second. Mm. But I think I think it was a, a, a dreadful bit of, of sportsmanship or lack of it, per se, from from Canet. I was like 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 what do you set? Like what do you stand to gain from this Canet? I mean, like really, I just don't understand this at all. I think it was a horrendous thing to do. Um, and incredibly dangerous. Yeah. I haven't even mentioned that yet. It's an incredibly dangerous thing to do, and I think he, he shouldn't have been punished to the full extent of the rule book on this one because, like, Moto Three has had a reputation of rule breaking for the last two or three years now, where you know there's been a lot of mischievous behaviour. You know, where for instance. You know, following each other on the racing line has happened an awful lot. Blocking, so to speak, you know, slipstreaming attempts. Um, and the amount of danger that has been involved with it. And we've seen horrendous accidents as a result of this. And they, they've always, the stewards have always teased about cracking down and cracking down and cracking down on incidents like this. We just got one and they've sat on their hands. I don't understand the logic here um, at all. Mm, yeah, I was just about to say that. I mean, from from Yachenko's point of view, I mean, the, the poor kid. I mean, the, he was first of all, he had no idea that he, in theory, held Canid up or blocked him or whatever, because he was. I mean, the poor the poor kid's a sixteen year old rookie. He's the first Kazakhstan rider ever to race in the World Championship, so it's not like he's familiar with the Tomaster Rio Hondo circuit. Um, let's face it. So the kid's trying to learn the circuit. He's trying to. He's busy trying to stay out of his own way, let alone getting anyone else's way. Um, and then the next thing he knows, Canitz just pulled the rug from under him. And and yet, race direction obviously were left with a decision to make. Canit and Emilio Zamora, his team boss, went to see them. And the stewards deemed it a racing incident. Which for me is giving... How? Which is giving Aaron Canit the benefit of an enormous amount of doubt. How in God's green earth do you describe that as a racing incident? Like that is not normal behaviour. Like you don't you don't run that close to another rider in a practice session, especially in Moto Three, which have bikes that are much more flexible and you could take multiple lines. And when in, you look at the front-on view of that, the front-on angle as the riders come towards you, um, the replay of it, 
they're supposed to be heading right, as in to the left of picture as you watch it. Right. And Aaron Cannon is heading straight on. Straight on. Straight on. He had no chance of making that corner. Like, not a hope in hell. Um, so, I don't want to go out there and say Cannon did it deliberately, but I've, I've always used the argument, would it hold up in a court of law? And the, the word they use in the court, or the term they use is, beyond a reasonable doubt. I can't get over that reasonable doubt in my mind on this one. And I know, and I know we're mixing sports here, but I, I think of football, for instance, and they yeah. often say that when a dangerous tackle is, is committed, the intent is irrelevant. It's the danger involved that, that that is that is what you're punishing the the, the player for in that instance. And I'm and I'm not the, that isn't necessarily the wording of the regulations in motorcycle racing. But even mm-hmm. if you do give Canet the benefit of the doubt and say, all right, he didn't mean to take Yachchenko out, still dangerous. I'm sure, I'm sure he didn't mean to take him out, but like, like, like what's the point? manners on him, didn't he? Yeah, like he did it to make a point, and I think that I think that's where I'm drawing the line. As he did it to make a point, because under normal circumstances, there would be no reason for him to run that close to each other. Like, at least not in at least in my humble opinion, anyway. Like, even if he didn't want to take him out, like I said, the intent doesn't matter. You rode dangerously. You should be punished. If 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 Joanne Mir is getting, like, a sixth-place grid penalty for weaving on a home straight. What the hell do you call that? Like, that's what I don't understand. I I just, I do not under... That's one of the worst and most baffling stewarding decisions I've ever seen in MotoGP. I I can't believe that after all the progression the stewards have made and all the points they've wanted to make about cracking down in Moto3 on silly behaviour and basically changing the rulebooks on penalties several times over in the last few years to try and get it right that they sat on their hands on this one i do not understand the logic it baffles me yeah i mean i'm trying to sort of think ahead what logic they'll have been using to make this decision i mean we we said before this show started we were speaking off air and we sort of said to ourselves what would the reaction have been not just publicly but within the stewards had those been two high profile riders in moto gp for instance um, right. Had it been a Marquez Rossi again, um, the public reaction to it would have been enormous and race direction, therefore, would have been under much greater pressure to do something about it. I mean, Absolutely. am I being a bit naive here by saying that because it was Makar Yachenko on the receiving end and because it was the, um, you know, the CIP Green Power team on the receiving end that race direction were under much less pressure and sort of felt they could just sweep this under the rug? Probably. I mean, the biggest victim in that in two years ago was Mark Marquez, who's the second biggest name in the sport, I would argue. And of course, the main aggressor was Valentino Rossi. And well, I still say to this day, the stewards took the easy way out by just, just, you know, randomly sticking an exactly three penalty point penalty in there. Probably knowing Rossi already had one, you know, which under normal circumstances means that but Rossi would basically have gotten no punishment whatsoever. They had a get out of jail free card. The fact Rossi already had a penalty point in 2015 so they can make it look like they sent him to the back of the grid. They still at least, uh, they still at least did something, though, and that, yeah. that took place in a race. This took place in yeah. pre-practice one. Like there's even less justification in it when it's happening in a practice session. If it was if it was happening in a race, you could you could maybe make the case that the amount of grey area yeah, falls it towards as a racing incident 
you could justify this is not a race it's a practice session so why are you riding like that it, it, it like for me as i as said intent doesn't matter he's done that in a practice session it, it it makes it even more boneheaded if you ask me i do not understand the logic behind it i and and i think i think no penalty was a bullshit decision mm, yeah and uh, aaron can it as a result will start wherever he qualifies so you can imagine Amazing. if he if he suddenly whacks it on pole and wins this weekend that uh, the likes of Jorge Martin and Enio Bastianini, his likely championship rivals, might well have a, a quiet word with Race Direction and ask why nothing was done about that. Um, but yeah, I, bizarre, just bizarre that Race Direction have done nothing about that. I thought at the very least he'd be thrown to the back of the grid for that, um, if not the pit lane or worse. Um, but as it is, as I say, Race Direction have either just decided that I don't know because it's Moto Three people are perhaps not even going to take any notice of it and they'll just let it lie or they've decided they've somehow taken can its word that it was just a an incident that just happened to in, incorporate another rider um which i think is as i say giving him the benefit of a, an enormous amount of doubt um on that Agreed. one um so no penalty for can it um moto gp then uh, this weekend um the weather conditions have been mixed so far this weekend we've had a lot of rain about potential for rain later on in the race weekend it's a notoriously low grip circuit that often choose tires which often with low grip tends to point things towards the hondas so far just Dre, such. so far Dre, everything appears to be coming up marquez really in argentina <laughs> never um yeah it's certainly looking that way um fastest in fp2 by almost half a second um and no and the crutch again on another honda the only guy really even close his, his pace was second yeah scintillating pace for marquez towards the end of free practice too another near miss another ridiculous marquez save which in marquez terms isn't even all that ridiculous anymore um and again just blistering pace um he loves Argentina. He has dominated Argentina almost every year they've been there from the start. Um, last year being the only real exception, and then that was a race he was you'd already checked out in, but just rode a little bit too hard and made a silly mistake. Um, I, I don't think Marquez will be doing that second time round. Funnily enough, um, the way it's going, it's looking very much like it's going to be Marquez's to lose on this one. And uh, yeah, uh, get behind that one if you ask me. Um, the battle for second and third could be interesting. Yeah. Um, How many rides yeah, are be involved in that? <laughs> that that could be fun. But the other thing I want to point out as well. Chicati, nowhere to be seen on this one. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I don't quite work out what they were up to in free practice too, because they, you know, Andrea Vizioso was slowest of all, the championship leader. Um, he was twenty fourth out of twenty four um, in free practice too, um, and was seen on camera after the session giving a bit of a sort of, you know, a sort of shrug to the camera as if to say, you know, you know, no bother, nothing to worry about. Um, but he leaves himself at risk now of potentially if it's wet in free practice three, um, he's in Q2, he's in Q1, sorry, on Saturday afternoon, as is his teammate Jorge Lorenzo, who just was uncompetitive with nothing else. But clearly, Dre Vizioso was up to something because there's no way he'd be three and a half seconds down and right down the back of the grid, you know, on pure pace. Um, Andre Vizioso isn't like that. Um, so clearly something was going on, but he puts himself at a bit of risk there, doesn't he? And even at this early stage, we're talking about potentially a championship battle between Marquez and Davizioso. And Davizioso potentially lost the championship last season on his bad days. I mean, Argentina was one of them by virtue of the fact that another guy took him out. It wasn't really his fault. Alessio Spargo wiped Me. him out. But, <laughs> but if you point to races like Phillip Island, where he finished midfield, faces like Assen, 
um, races like Saxon Ring, races like Aragon, where rather than finishing on the podium, he finished sort of deep in the top 10. Mm. That potentially is the risk that he's facing this weekend, isn't it? With the likes of Yamaha looking strong, uh, with the likes of Suzuki looking very good this weekend too, all the Indeed. Hondas looking strong, the likes of Crutchlow and Pedrosa. There's no guarantee that Davizioso, even if he gets it together, is going to be on the podium this weekend. It's worth pointing out that last year, Dovi was taken out by Alicia Spagaro from sixth position. Mm. Now, I've, I've come to the conclusion over the last season and a bit now that when it comes to these two in the context of a title fight, I, I get the feeling that Dovi's ceiling is higher, but Marquez's floor is higher, if you get what I'm trying to say. I feel like on a good day, Dovi... Seems you, you to can't have, limit the damage. Yeah, like it seems that like Dovi can't limit the damage when Ducati has a bad round. They have a really bad round, and they sink into you know maybe that four through nine sort of area. Whereas if Marquez has a bad day, he can still put it on the podium um, because he just has that much ability in him. Um, his his fail safe seems to be a little bit higher than Dovi's on a on a on a bad day. And Ducati's never really gone particularly well around here. They've always been battling for minor podiums at best. And let's not talk about, you know, the couple of seasons ago. In, I was about in, to say, yeah, Thomas Rio Hondo hates Andre Davizioso. Yeah, it's, it's not ideal, to say the least. Um, so factoring all of that in um it, it, this could be a dodgy round for dovi where it, like anything less than a podium um could be harmful towards his championship challenge it's it's it, it, like dovi may be leading the championship now but he could be 10 to 15 points back going to kota which is the marquez circuit mm, um uh, undefeated since its inception um so the way it's going right now um, this could be a painful round coming up for Dovi, and it could be a painful couple of rounds. They're a bit stronger around Ground Cota, but they've not gone particularly well around Argentina in recent times, and yeah, they might need to do something about that. Yeah, it's it's a tricky circuit for Ducati in that, I mean, we've seen privateer Ducatis go very well here in the past. We saw Abraham on the front <laughs> row last year, Bautista finished fourth, and Tito Rabat was third today in free practice, so clearly... Age Ducati works there. Just perhaps maybe Davizioso is just keeping his powder dry at this early stage. Uh, we mm. shall see. And Dovi had a podium in 15. He finished second to Valentino Rossi in the race that's remembered for very different things than what Davizioso got up to. Uh, Dovi inheriting second when Marquez uh, vacated the second place in that race. Um, with that, the first of them, which publicized collisions between himself and Valentino Rossi that year. Um, and he was running second, as we said, the year after that, before Andrea Iannone skittled him out when he could smell the finish line um and last year he was taken out of sick it is gonna be interesting this weekend because there is only really one straight to speak of where the ducati can stretch its legs um, and indeed that's the, and that's the very between turn four and turn five it's a very twisty infield section um which as i mentioned really does suit marquez and honda um so we'll see it how does. they get on it's also gonna be interesting to see how yamaha can uh, can get on vinales of course leading a yamaha one two here uh, last year um Mark Marquez, though, starts as the strong favourite. He was quickest today ahead of Cal Crutcher in second place. They were the only two riders in the 139s. Tito Rabat in third. As I mentioned, Andrea Iannone for Suzuki fourth. Ahead of Pedroza fifth. Maverick Vinales was sixth. He uh, jumped up to sixth very late in the session. Valentino Rossi's teammate seventh. Rins in eighth. Bautista ninth. And Alicia Spargaro um, for Aprilia completed the top ten. A top ten that does not include either factory 
Ducati. Um, so pressure on them tomorrow. Uh, almost pointless, really, predicting a winner, Dre. So I think we're both agreed it's going to be Mark Marquez um, this weekend. All, all in for 93. <laughs> all in for 93. Um, Moto 2, much more or less straightforward. I don't know about you, but I'm leaning slightly in favour of Miguel Oliveira on this one. What about you? Yeah, me too. He was very strong there last year as well. Was right in the leading group for the victory. Didn't quite get to Frankie Morbidelli in time on that one. Alex Marquez, again, is looking strong on practice times. But uh, do you want to put your faith in Alex Marquez? Because I don't. Nope. Um, crashed on the final so, time last year. Uh, yeah, you, you know, it's... it's I'm not. I, I, do, I, don't, I just don't have the confidence to back Alex Marquez consistently yet. So for me, at least... Um, I'm I'm gonna go Miguel Oliveira on that one. Yeah, me too. Moto three. Bassini's a good threat, though. I will point out as well. Um, Bassini's looked fast all weekend, so keep half an eye on him. Um, Moto three, you say? Um, it's written for Can it to win, isn't it? <laughs> if Can it wins, that's like, <laughs> <better> a god. <laughs> like there will there will be bananas thrown at laptop monitors if if that is a thing. And Leia Bastianini was was quite quick in the, in the better conditions in free practice too. Leopard in general looked very strong. Dana Porter was second in that session as well. Um, it was a bit of a crapshoot. I think Jorge Martin will come through again. I think on this one, um, but don't be surprised if Aaron Canet wins and boos to be heard from a certain someone in West London watching the race on his phone, most likely. <laughs> yeah, we shall see. We shall see. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be very boring and go for Jorge Martin um, to win it. I mean, he looked very good today in the morning session, less good in the afternoon, which was what well, started where it ended dry. Um, in free practice. One other thing I'd say in Moto3, um, go Gabby Rodrigo, the one home rider in the field, the one Argentine in the field. Yes, um, just the one. Who, um, who looked very good in Qatar, finished high up in the top six and qualified well as well. Um, I really hope he has a good race weekend. It'll be great for the sport and that, that part of the world, which is um, motorcycle racing mad. Uh, it will be great to see them get a home result. Um, that brings us to the end uh, of this week's edition of Bike Live, episode 53. Ryan, uh, next week's episode 131 of Motorsport 101 breaks down all the action for Formula 1 and IndyCar this weekend. We'll be back for episode 54 of Bike Live this time next week as well to break down everything that happens in Argentina. We look forward to your company then, but until then, it's bye-bye from us. Bye-bye.